Welcome to Opposable Thumbs, a podcast where Taylor and Rob chat with a guest about our creative accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. My name is Rob Ray. I use he, his gender pronouns. I'm a user interface designer and artist, and I make music and objects using the name Shimmering Trash Pile. And I'm Taylor Hokinson. I'm an artist, educator, DIY enthusiast, CAD cam evangelist, noted tall person, Midwestern Viking, and I'm a he, his kind of guy. Liz Mason is our guest this episode. Greetings, Liz. My name is Liz Mason. I use she, her pronouns. I am a writer, artist, poser, sociologist, picky eater, and I manage Quimby's bookstore here in Chicago. <laughs> so so was the um, poser attached to the sociologist or, was, or were poser and sociologist separate? I guess they're together. There's no comma in between poser and sociologist. Just I like to do oral histories of things and... I like to process data about ridiculous things. So yeah. So Rob, I, I do believe that you and Liz have known each other for a long time. Is that right? It is true. I have a burning question, but I think because your relationship is the one that got this thing launched, I should probably take a, a back seat. But I, I was reading Liz's work and was interested to know more. And her bio kind of inspired me. But I guess, should I just talk about it since I've already set it up? Sure. Liz, the poser aspect I was really interested in. So would you mind describing Quimby's a little bit? And then I had some questions about Quimby's because it's really a Chicago institution, right? Yeah. So it's a bookstore, but it is also specifically what the store is known for selling is independently published periodicals. So zines, mini comics, artist booklets, and then also books that are a little bit more uh, subversive, published by small presses, and kind of a feel of stuff that's a little bit more kind of out there or kind of outer limitsy or mayhemy in that kind of a way. And the store's been around since the 90s. I started working there in 2001. So next year will be my 20th anniversary of working there. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. I kind of can't imagine having a job for that long. I mean, I guess I've been at Columbia College for 10 years. But that's the longest I've ever had a gig somewhere. Are there other people that work with you that have been there for that long? No, just, I mean, the owner, obviously. But actually, the current owner of Quimby's is not the original owner. He, oh. yeah, he bought the store from Stephen Simbersky, who founded Quimby's in 1991. And then he ran Quimby's for a few years and then sold the business to the current owner, who also owned Chicago Comics. That was in the late 90s, and then the store moved from its previous location to where it is now, which is just a few blocks away from where it was before. But yeah, I didn't anticipate that this was really going to be my career. I basically just started working there because I wanted to work there, and I harassed them until they hired me. And then somehow I've just been there the whole time. Rob, you'll have to tell me what your experience is. My experience with Quimby's is just going into a place, but it has a kind of a more complicated presentation than a store. And in, in some ways, I'm kind of amazed that it can continue to operate in what is more of a, you know, what you expect, like um, trying to get the largest possible audience and to purchase things because you know that they'll sell and so forth. And there's like a weirdness that Quimby's has managed to hang on to that I feel like I can't, I can't think of any other store in Chicago or, or elsewhere even. Rob, is that your experience with Quimby's? How do you relate to the store? I remember Quimby's old location, and I remember always feeling like such an OG when I would be like, that's where Quimby's used to be. <laughs> 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 I would like strut my punk rock self. Yeah, I was just so boiling over with street credential. If I was like, I need to get my hands on a copy of the Subgenius book, 
then I would be like, Quimby's is my first place to go. But that's often not how I end up at Quimby's. I usually end up at Quimby's because I think of it as a kind of clearinghouse of things that are fascinating and weird and wonderful. And so I would just go in and be like, okay, Quimby's amaze me. And then I would always, pretty much always be fulfilled. But what's interesting is my experience is always very different. Sometimes I would go in and I would leave with a handful of stuff that none of which cost more than $3 a piece, you know, or something like that. And then sometimes I could have gotten this book anywhere, but I got it, not anywhere, but, you know, I could have gotten it at some other bookseller and been like, this was great. And the thing that I will say really always won me over at Quimby's was there was, I don't know if there still is, but, you know, little write-ups that sort of tell you, kind of have like a curatorial pose. Oh, this book is blah, 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 blah. And I would just be like, oh, like it would always sell me. And so that was my experience of Quimby's. I will admit that like if I left with like one of the quote unquote more mainstream publishers, which at Quimby's is actually not that mainstream, really. I would always feel kind of bad. I'm like, oh man, there's so many zines. I wish I had supported with my $20. But instead, I bought this book on the Jesus lizard or something. I don't know, whatever. I understand where you're coming from on that angle. I hear you. But I just want to also just say thank you for spending money at the store. Totally. Yeah. Quimby's is, is great. I mean, Quimby's also is just such a experience. If you have $5, you're going to leave with like well more than $5 worth of woe. When you get out, you know, you're just like, oh, my God, look at that. Or look at that crazy zine on bathtubs or whatever it is that <laughs> that the world has to offer. The experience that you describe of coming into the store without a list, you know, like shopping sort of deductively instead of inductively. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to pick from what's there and take. I feel like that is a much more fun way of shopping at a store like that. There are certain things that people always know we're going to carry, like certain publishers, like anytime Feral House does a book that we're going to have their book, which is great, too. And I love that people are like, there are a variety of places I can get that book, but I choose to buy it there, which is also really nice. So it's nice to kind of have both angles covered you know it helps keep the store in business <laughs> yeah totally liz as, as somebody that's really had kind of a front row seat a really active seat in watching you know chicago the city but also the nature of publishing and the individual weirdos that come in and so forth it, it just seems like you would have a really complex perspective of cultural shifts in this kind of territory. And so, I mean, I have questions for you about the really top level stuff and also your personal writing, because I was reading your writing samples on your website and enjoying them. One thing I found really funny was uh, reading the piece about a week in the life of Quimby's. So it's written in a kind of diaristic style, right? And you're talking about these different sort of characters that come in and some of them have requests that you don't like, and, you know, some of them are delightful and whatever. But then you're also associating different characters with the kind of things that they choose to read or whether or not they might hide, you know, one like more sexually explicit publication in a jacket that looks more intellectual or whatever, which I thought was so great. And then also made me so paranoid because I feel like one of the things as a non-religious person, if I'm at the library or the bookstore, that's as close as I get to sort of a spiritual experience, that sort of intellectual spiritual experience. And I would like to imagine that the bookseller is monkish in their studied non-noticing of what I've chosen to read and whether or not it's <laughs> it's like appropriate or, or meets a certain intellectual standard. So I was delighted and also horrified by that piece. So I was like, oh no, like I'm the guy in, in some piece Liz has written. It's like this looming big-haired character decides to read the so-and-so scene or whatever. <laughs> so so I really I really like that piece, but it made me paranoid. Oh my God, I, that was not my intention. Thank you. I'm glad you like that piece because that makes me feel a little less bad about potentially making anybody 
come in and might feel like they're being judged because people do come in and often I can tell that they're uncomfortable and shy and feeling like we might judge them or we're just glad that they're there, honestly. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you talked in this piece, for example, about, or maybe it was another one of the pieces I was reading, but there's sort of, I mean, a lot of the material is strange. And then some of it you're describing as explicitly as pornography just because that's what it is whereas other material just might be more up in the air i think in one of the pieces you talked about a bunch of cops responding to a burglar alarm as being interested in bubble bath buddies or, <laughs> or something like that whatever it was particularly in academia i spend i spend so much time really tiptoeing around some of this topic matter because i feel like a lot of my students are very interested in sexually explicit material but then they also have a lot of classes that are introducing them to feminism and so forth for the first time. And it seems like in the undergraduate years, there's not a lot of time to really dig in there and say, yes, some pornography is really toxic and horrible, and some is made by really interesting independent producers and this whole spectrum in between. I guess I need to start asking more questions than making statements. <laughs> like I enjoyed reading your description of these things where finger wagging didn't come into it and it's weird and it's complicated and there's pornography over here and there's just black and white pictures of grass over there and there's just like this giant colorful spectrum in between so i really enjoyed that right and there's like arty arty erotica versus hardcore porn and yeah it's that that is a complicated topic especially now when i'm glad that it's complicated because that's understanding the necessary nuances of explicit material Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Rob, our ongoing joke is that you would prefer if you could to take a bath with a three-piece suit on uh, than to reveal your nude body. You want to, you want to jump in on this topic? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea of someone taking a bath in a three-piece suit. Like, that's very gentlemanly. I feel like you should wear some brass goggles. I'd be a little steampunky. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All he'll do is just put his cravat on the vanity before he... <laughs> <laughs> before stepping in to the bow. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Liz, I want to explain the mental model I have of how you and I met. And I, th I think it's correct, but I could just be totally wrong. It was like partially radio station, partially dead tech. Yes, right, right, right. Yeah. I remember I had just started at WZRD. Oh my God, wait, when you were working there, you had just started there? I didn't realize that. I feel like you'd been there forever. I think when you and I met, it was maybe my first or second time on air by myself. I think. Oh my God, you seemed like such a pro. I had no idea. <laughs> 97? Was it 97? That's, that's yeah. about right. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, here I go. You know, operating a radio station by yourself is scary a little bit, you know? Sure. Because like you could hit one or two wrong buttons and all of a sudden everything's off the air. And I remember coming in and it was at night, I think. I'm not quite sure when, but it seemed somewhat late, like 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. or something. And you were on and you always come like DJs come to the station a little bit before your show because you want to pick music, whatever. You muted the mic and you're like, hey, I'm Liz. And I was like, oh, that's a cool person. And then you're like, I'm making this cool zine called Cul-de-Sac. And you gave me a copy of Did it. Did I? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And 97, I think. <gasps> It was 97, 98, somewhere in there. And I was just like, this is so cool. Like I'm having this like countercultural moment. I'm at my like independent radio station. I got a copy of a zine. Like <laughs> I was just like, wow, this is amazing. 
What was the expression you used before flaunting intense street credibility or your punk rock? Yeah, yeah, my street credentials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wow, this is so cool. It just made me feel really good about like my life choices at the time, which I was having a lot of ambivalence about because I had just moved in by myself and had kind of a weird situation life-wise. You know, I don't know. I was in my 20s, I guess. Straight out of Tampa. Yeah, yeah. You just feel like sometimes you're like, am I making the right life choices? Like, I feel like I'm decoupling myself from my identity because I I got a square job or whatever these things, these life choices that we make. But that was like a very grounding moment for me because I was just like, oh, cool. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. So. Oh, that, that makes me feel so good about you. <laughs> What's hilarious about that is, you know, that is a community radio station at Northeastern University. And the whole reason I was there at Northeastern is because I had gone back to school to get a teaching certificate for secondary English, which is a pretty square job. Same. I was I was definitely like a returning adult student to try to figure out my life. And at that time, I think I was going to school full time, but also working. So that was the thing, too, as I was just like, my life is so filled with adulting, but I really wanted to DJ at the radio station. So yeah. Anyway, so yeah, thanks. You were like a very welcoming, gracious person. And it- It's cool, like, I don't know if you felt this way at the radio station, but you kind of overlap always with the other DJ for just like 10 or 15 minutes, you know, because if you're wrapping up your show and the other person is like, I got to get on the air. So it's always these like weird bursty things because you're kind of both doing a lot. But it's so fun because it's like a relay race, you know, like the radio must continue. Yes. And you're like handing the baton, the cool stick to someone else and being like, okay, here's the cool stick. Now it's your turn to be cool. I really miss that part. I really miss, in a way, being a radio station DJ. And I have to tell you, I recently discovered the cassette recordings I made of a bunch of my radio shows. And I'm in the process of converting them, but I haven't gotten to the WZRD ones. I've only gotten to the ones from where I went to school in Oregon. I was music director at the college radio station there. It was KWVA. Oh, cool. I have to tell you, there is nothing as uncomfortable as listening to voiceovers that you did 20 years ago as like a child some of the oh i was insufferable but now that we're talking about this is making me feel like i need to skip over that stuff and get right to the wzrd stuff because i wonder if there are any voiceovers where maybe we might have been talking together there definitely could be moments where like you like read your track list or something in the night of the psas afterwards so right and that brings me to cul-de-sac which is a part of your career taylor you're the i think the most academic person on <laughs> Oh, that the the listeners can't the listeners can't see this, but the expression that Taylor just made when you said when you said that he did this very like it was sarcastic again, but it was hilarious. It was like a very sort of like sarcastically smug look. <laughs> the curricula vitae. Uh, I think so. I just I just say CV. CV, yeah. <laughs> so in in all of our faculty meetings where we go on and on about word choice, like if you tell your colleagues, oh. I read this piece of theory or clearly that the Deleuzian way of approaching this topic or whatever. I'm always so frustrated because if I roll in there and ask them about stepper motor tuning or something, everyone doesn't know and they also don't care. Whereas if you don't know theory, then you're somehow at fault. Anyway, that's just my axe to grind about art history, but carry on. Uh (laughs) CVs. (laughs) CVs, yes. In your CV, Liz, after 45 minutes of chatting, we're eventually going to ask you about your work. So (laughs) see if I can do that now. Um, you published for quite some time a zine called Cul-de-Sac. You, I think, currently publish a zine called Caboose. Yes. So Cul-de-Sac was the zine that I published with one of my friends that we did a bunch of issues and then it just kind of fell by the wayside as we both went and did other projects. 
And then we started republishing it again. And we're almost done with another issue. And this new issue is going to be about food and our weird food habits. Oh, that's nice. You have a couple of other zine runs, the Punk Rock Glee Club, and also a zine called Awesome Things. And so you're a creative person. And so you have lots of interesting thoughts. And certainly, you know, at Quimby's, you have a ton of like zine stimulation probably pouring into your head at all times. And I was just curious, how do you put down the marker to be like, I'm going to do a zine about this? How do you sort of craft the idea for a new publication or a new publication series? So there's no real good way to describe the type of writing that I do. But for lack of a better term, I just say it's creative nonfiction for a lot of the stuff that I write. And so I'll be writing a piece and then I'll be writing another piece and then a theme will emerge like, oh, weird. All of these pieces have this thing that I'm dealing with right now as the theme. And so that tends to end up. So like if I'm doing a new issue of Caboose and I'm working on an issue right now where I wrote all these pieces and I was like, oh, weird. The thing that all these pieces have in common right now, it's clearly what I'm grappling with is issues of communication. So there's a piece about hilariously I'm writing about what it is like to digitize my college radio years and how uncomfortable that is. Yeah. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. So it's weird that we would be having that conversation right now. Okay. Full quote. And one of the voiceovers was this particular song has to do with the Petrarchan beloved. I'm like, Oh Jesus. No. Can you unpack that for us? What is the Petrarchan beloved? I don't even remember. It was what I was learning about in English class. I don't, you know, I, the one that got away concept, maybe? I don't know. Thing that you always love? I, I'm totally making that up. I don't even remember. But anyway, so all the pieces that are in the new issue of Caboose have to do with issues of communication and connection. So I don't know if you guys have done any karaoke during COVID. You do it online. And the problem with the technology is that whoever's doing the music and whoever's singing, they're never synced up. So I talked to a, a guy who is a software developer who came up with this software to get rid of that lag that happens between the person who's caging, you know, karaoke DJing and the person who's performing and singing and how, how to get those two things to sync up. And I, I interviewed that guy. It's stuff like that about connection with people. And, you know, I think I, oh, I did a piece about the very first zine I ever published, which was really more like a newsletter in fifth grade or fourth grade. And I think I sold it for a dime. I sold it to my teacher and an audience of maybe four other people. So I had a humongous distribution radius. Perhaps you'd like to join my media empire. We do one issue. It was called Jam Pack. We do one issue every like 38 years. Don't know if you want to get on that subscription list. I mean, they do always say your first album is the most creative one, right? Because you've waited your whole life to make it. Right. And that's why the second one is not as good. Cause you only get six months to do it. So, so don't knock that first one. That, that could have been where it's at. I mean, I had a whole nine years to work on that, definitely. There's usually like some kind of bigger issue that I'm grappling with, and then that kind of ends up being whatever that issue of the zine is about. But there are other zines that I do that are totally not like that at all. Like I was talking about being like poser sociologist, sometimes I call it the armchair sociologist, where there'll be some activity or group that I'm part of that I get obsessed with the minutia and I end up doing like an oral history of it. So that's what Punk Rock Glee Club is all about, because I used to sing with this acapella punk rock glee club called the Blue Ribbon Glee Club. And so we did a couple issues of that. And then I did oral history of Quimby's when we turned 25. And I, I basically learned how to do oral histories from reading oral histories, like Please Kill Me. 
the kind of scrappiest zine that I do is just called Awesome Things. And it's basically lists of things that I find awesome. So it's like overheard conversations, things that my cats do. I don't mean to write so much about my cats. It just comes up a lot. Things that happened during the day that I was like, you know what, that was actually pretty awesome. And if I don't write this down, I will forget it. Is is writing a sort of regular daily, weekly, monthly practice for you and then those end up in the zine? Or do you sort of start thinking like, okay, new zine, what am I going to put in it? Or is there a back and forth about that? Or how does that work? Usually it's a back and forth. But here's the other thing. Sometimes someone will give me, I'll, I'll get such a good idea, either prompted by someone or it'll occur to me or whatever, that process will be idea of zine first pieces go into it sometimes it's a little bit of back and forth like oh i'm writing a bunch of stuff this theme is emerging that really should go in this although to be fair in direct contrast to everything that i just said the new issue of cul-de-sac that julie and i are doing my co-editor is julie helpern she was like I want to write about food. I think we should make the next issue about food. And I was like, well, I have plenty to say about food. So happy to follow along that. Since we've been composing our pieces, writing them independently, and then meeting up on Zoom every week. All right, here's what I wrote. Let's share it. It really resonates with me. I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there that can think all of my work is about X. And then you sit down and think for a while, and then you just make work on that theme. But I too share the preference that you just make a ton of stuff. And if you are interested in it, it means that there's something there. And then you can kind of look back as a reader on your own work and say, ah, well, clearly I'm interested in these topics and these themes, you know, based on what I did. And so I think those are two ways of approaching a practice. And I like that kind of shooting from the hip one, at least in the beginning. And then you can come back around and recognize thematic material. That's cool. It's whatever issues that your subconscious is dealing with right then you know, at that time in your life. There have been times where I've written a bunch of pieces, I realize that's what the theme is going to be. And then when I realize that's the theme, then I write more pieces inspired by the theme, or I find other pieces that I've started in the past and never finished because the time wasn't right. And now the time is right because it is in some way relevant, or I have changed in such a way that those pieces can be fashioned into something that is relevant to the theme. If that makes any sense. Rob, I do have one more question if I can. Sure. So one thing that I got really interested in, and Liz, if you like, we can beep uh, names if you want to. It sounded like there's sort of an interesting conflict that can happen with success, right? So you talked about the top of the show being, you know, feeling like a poser. But I think we also kind of, I think all three of us, if I'm not mistaken, kind of adopt that punk rock attitude, like we want to define what success looks like for us. And we want to be part of small things in some ways. And some weirdness can only happen at a certain scale, right? Like it can't happen at Barnes and Noble or whatever. But then also I noticed the names of people, and I think they're nationally successful, but certain people would come up where they deserve to be famous. You know, clearly they're really good at their job, but they also then kind of occupy a strange territory when it comes to the weirdness of their origin. I mean, I can name names that we can beef out (laughs) or we could all wink and nod, but I I felt like that was another thing I was picking up in some of your writing. Yes, I totally understand what you're saying. It's reluctant capitalism, essentially, right? So I want the cred of the underground artist, but I would also like the success of the not underground artist. (laughs) However you define success, whether it's recognition, uh, money, you know, whatever, you know, all the stylings that come with what we 
stereotypically think of when we think of success. You know, there is that kind of push and pull, right? Like if you make art, you want people to consume it. And yet you don't want too many people consuming it because that, you know, but like, what is that cutoff? I have no idea. Especially, I mean, I hate to blame everything on the internet, right? That's always like the scapegoat. But it does feel like things are set up in such a way now that there's like subcultures to the subcultures and maybe it was just always like that but it wasn't as obviously sort of documented in a way that people could see in the sense of like the way the internet brings things to light you know it's hard it's hard to really make peace with that that is definitely a topic that is unintentionally prolifically represented in my work (laughs) And I think part of it, too, is because I have similar feelings about the store, right? The store is supposed to represent the voices that are less represented and, you know, all the sort of stylings that we associate with that. And yet the store is also a retail establishment. And also, to be fair, you know, the notion of the, you know, community bookstore that serves more sort of artistic voices and that in some ways, I, I will be the first to admit that in some ways, that is also kind of a, a, another way of marketing your store. So I don't, I don't want to come off as naive to understanding the nuances of, you know, how complicated that whole situation is. It's tough. It's a weird topic. Speaking of weird topics, I just want to give a shout out to one of your zines, Liz, from 2012, called Prizes, Things My Dad Has Had to Take Out of Animals. My dad's a retired veterinarian, and he still has his collection of things he's taken out of animals like kidney stones and game pieces and rubber bands and money. (laughs) Do they all go into the same container, or are they sort of uh, cataloged? They are cataloged in individual containers. Yeah. I don't do a lot of photo zines, but that was one of them. Are you familiar with the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia? Yes. Kind of strikes me as something like that. I went there with my father-in-law, who is a pathologist by trade. And so to him, it was just like Monday. I got lightheaded by being surrounded by all that like dark wood and the smells in there. And I, I kind of got faint. And then he was just sort of wandering around like, whatever. <laughs> Liz, I have a question for you that is both a personal question and maybe a question that our listeners are curious about. I have on occasion published zines. My first scene was in high school. It was a collaborative zine put out with my friend clay smith and it was called the voice of today or something like that i forget now what it was called shoot i wish i really wish i could remember what it was called anyway it was like for our high school it was sort of an alternative high school publication like a high school newspaper alternative and then i had a zine about like computers and technology and punk rock called pakistani brain which is the name of one of the first computer viruses ever invented really yeah, I still have the original. I don't have any copies of it, but I have the like uh, paste ups, you know, from it. Oh, yeah. I should re-release it. You know, that's the thing we do these days as aging uh, creative people. It's a re-release. So maybe I should do that. Especially if it's from a particularly awkward era of your life, because those are always the most amusing. There's a lot of like personal misery baked into those sentences for sure. You know, because I was like a straight edge kid and, you know, my partners at the time were screwing me over because they smoked marijuana or something. I'm sure there's like many ridiculous statements in there. <laughs> Just like my, my personal youth, youthful drama. You know what's so funny? I, I finally pieced together recently that when a teenager says that they're straight edge, Sure, they don't drink, they don't smoke, blah, blah, blah. But really, it's just because their parents are really strict. They don't really have a choice. 
So it's a punk rock way of saying, I have these limitations, but it's cool. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, man. That is so insightful. That is really, really great. I can push my parents with my music choices and haircut, but I cannot push my parents with, with uh, chemical consumption. Liz, I, so my question was, a lot that's baked into the idea of zine is about community and about being a part of, of a zine community, maybe, or being a part of a publishing collective or self-publishing collective, or just knowing other people who make zines and trading with them or just doing stuff like that. And I think you are someone who has made lots of zines before. And I think of you as engaged in those communities. I don't know how you think of yourself in that way, but I still don't quite know how to get started with making zine making a bigger part of my life. And I guess I was just curious if you had any advice for someone like me who was like, if I make a zine, I just want to get it to more people. Like, I'm totally happy, like, giving them away, but I don't even quite know how to start. And I just was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Especially because shows don't even happen anymore. So it's not like... It's not like you go to a show and give it to people or whatever. I guess you could do what Julie and I used to do back when we first started doing cul-de-sac. We would just get a copy of any kind of zine that had reviews of other zines. And then we would just send them out. But also, you know, now there are so many more places that sell zines. Like, I mean, yeah, Quimby's will take anything as long as it's, you know, bound and under a certain price and you know, logistically is something that you read. There's a Quimby's in New York now, you know. The um, original founder, Stephen, the one who sold it to Eric Kersimer, he left the States and moved to Amsterdam for 20 years. And then he decided he wanted to move back to the States. And he was like, he contacted the Chicago Quimby's and was like, do you guys mind if I open one in New York? And there was an arrangement worked out. And, you know, now he's got a cute little... Quimby's, it's, it's right next to Desert Island in Brooklyn. So the, the, there's a great comic book store. So Quimby's won't sell comics because Desert Island is right next door. And But, you know, he'll take zines. You know, it's the same type of arrangement. You know, you send five copies, you fill out the form, you check in periodically. Once it sells, you get a percentage of the retail price. But there's a lot of other stores that sell that kind of stuff around the country, around the world now. You know, there's Sticky and... Australia and Melbourne, Atomic in Baltimore. And then, you know, there's places that will review it like Xerography Debt or Razor Cake. You know, there's so many ways to, you know, I mean, I, I have an Etsy store. I sell my zines there too. But, you know, you don't necessarily have to do it that way. It's weird how many people have heard of zines now. Like I know like teachers and librarians that use it in their curriculum. And then those kids grow up, become zine archivists and use zines in their classes and there's definitely easy ways to get it out i mean you can also just i'm not a big fan of this but you can just like sell pdfs of it and have people print it out i have one zine on my website from 2002 i don't need to reprint it but i don't want it not out there so you know i have that available as an option to download on my website it was the karaoke issue of caboose it was fine it's a little outdated yeah, that makes sense. Another question I had is about the zine as a format. I think one of the things that is powerful to me about zines is that it is a person's expression in many formats. It's their writing. It's their maybe photography. It's their layout. It's their design treatment. It's a kind of opportunity to explore your creativity through more than just words, Right. And I was just curious, many of your zines have a kind of certain aesthetic 
or a certain kind of style that you bring to it. And I was just curious about how you think of your style or how do you how you think of a zine as a bigger thing than, say, just graphic design or just writing because it's all of the things combined. Up until very recently, and even still kind of recently, depending on what mood I'm in, I think of myself more as a writer than an artist, even though I am kind of an artist in many ways. The reason that I get so into zines is because it does allow so many facets of creativity to to be used. And not just that, but it also, getting back to that thing about zine publishing as being part of a community, the price of admission of being part of that community is making the thing to be in that community. And it's almost like I'm making this thing to continue affording me the opportunity to have a dialogue with my readers. And like, I love it when I hear back from people and they're like, oh my God, that thing that you said about blah, blah, blah really resonated with me because blah, blah, blah. It's funny. I used to make fun of my parents when they would do the annual holiday newsletter. And I recently was like, oh, that's what I do. That's my zine. That's the, it's the Liz News. Oh, embarrassing. I am officially my parents now, you know? <laughs> And I was like, no, you know what? I'm just going to lean into it. I'm just going to lean into it. It does afford me like both the writing thing and like I really enjoy layout stuff. I collect clip art books. I'm a sucker for like a good issue of Crap Hound, an old Dover clip art book. Mwah, chef's kiss. I love just reading those to like look for the art. It's like basically an excuse to sit down with an art book that can never not be fun. There's so many facets of it that really just feed into different elements of creativity of different things that I like. The layout, you know, not just the writing, but like the editing too. Even the editing is enjoyable, even if it drives me crazy. And even like I used to get really into the collating folding stapling. I'm a little less excited about that than I was 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, now I just want to create the thing and have, it's a lot harder to find printing scams now. And I do also enjoy like the distribution angle of it too. I love a good spreadsheet. I enjoy the packing, like if somebody orders something and I enjoy packing it up in a little thing and drawing a little doodle on a piece of paper, like, thanks for your order. Basically playing store the way I did when I was a kid, even though I played store 40 hours plus a week at an actual store. But playing store at home is different than playing store at store. <laughs> I mentioned this in other podcasts, but I've been trying to get more into collage, which is an original kind of art practice I had way, way, way back in the day um, that overlapped with my zine life. And I kind of wanted to try to put those together. Yeah, I was really interested because I heard you talking about that. And you you brought up Winston Smith, who, you know, did stuff for Dead Kennedys and all that. And it warmed my little teenage punk rock heart. <laughs> and I was like, oh, uh, it's too bad you don't live in Chicago anymore because we have all those magazine grab bags of I'll have to send you a stack of like weird old tabloids and stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Liz, did, is there anything we missed that you want to talk about? Oh, I should tell you guys about this new project that I'm working on that I'm really excited about. Okay. So I'm making a most wanted and a most unwanted zine. So you guys are probably familiar with Colmar and Melmud. They did the most wanted and most unwanted art, the most wanted, most unwanted songs and all that. It occurred to me listening to people express their opinions about good and bad zines all the time. It's just a topic that just comes up a lot that... I jokingly said, you know, the zines that sell the best are ones about cats, pizza, and intersectional feminism. And someone said, well, you are in the perfect position to be collecting that data. 
And I was like, so my brain immediately went to like, oh, wait a minute. No, I could officially collect data. So I sent everybody I knew a, a link or gave people a flyer. And I was like, fill out this survey, please. And it asked people in a variety of different ways. What things do you or don't you like in zines? What things make you crazy in terms of construction? What are your least favorite types of zines and content? And then I recently took all of the data and like gelled it together. And now I have pie charts about what people do and don't like in zines. And I started <laughs> making the most wanted and most unwanted zine. And you'll be unsurprised. You'll be unsurprised to learn that it is more fun to make the most unwanted zine because it is so hilarious. Would you like to know the number one thing that people don't like in terms of topic? Just take a guess what you think it might be. I want to guess. Yeah. Uh, let's see the thing that they like the least. Uh, let's see. Nonfictional histories. Okay. Rob, you want to take a guess? I have no idea why this popped in my head, but I'm going to go for it. Sensible shoes. <laughs> I'm sure there's a great scene about sensible shoes out there. I would 100% read a zine about sensible shoes. Okay. Well, the answer is poetry. Oh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> One of the follow-ups was fiction. People don't like poetry and fiction in zines, which is weird because that's what literary journals are. <laughs> but I think when people think of the stereotypical notion of a zine, I think... I'll be totally honest, like probably most of the people who filled out my zine were people that like nonfiction type of stuff, because that is typically what is featured in zines, you know. But so, of course, I got right to it, writing a poem <laughs> about about zines and what people do and don't like in them. So I'm, I'm really excited. I, I haven't decided, like, the problem with the construction issue is that people were like, you know, what I don't like in zines is when it's like stapled in just the corner and is like totally oversized or even not stapled at all and illegible, and you know, like all the things that you would complain about if you were reading something that you were like, what? Yeah. So I don't, publishing that is going to be weird and hard or I'm going to have to let certain things go. <laughs> you know, I don't know. There's nothing like sitting down to work on something and laughing with like tears rolling down your face while you're working on it. Like, like I wish every project was like that. You know, I wish that's how I felt about everything that I did. Listener, we'd like to send you an opposable thumb sticker. If you share a podcast episode on social media, rate us on iTunes, send smoke signals or some other cool thing to let people know about the podcast, we will mail you a sticker. Just contact us on Instagram at opposable underscore podcast or at our email, opposable podcast at gmail.com. We'd like to give a shout out to Wesley Ellis, Charlene McBride, Adam Mayer, Deb Chatra, Blondie Hacks, Nick Kantar, Walter Katundu, and David Bellhorn. They are top Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them at our League of Patreon Supported Badasses, please go to patreon.com slash opposable thumbs to sponsor us. Anything you can donate really helps keep the podcast going. Our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter, or religion, or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. You can check out our full code of conduct over at our site. Liz, do you have any links or other fun things that you would like to share with people so they can find out more about your work? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caboose zine my etsy stores liz mason zines or my website is liz mason is awesome i do also a preposterous podcast called found and sync fan fiction radio hour which where we read from a 
a binder that one of my friends found uh, at a thrift store full of in sync fan fiction about a first person narrator who's obsessed with Joey Fatone. Um, it's not even like a band that I even have that much of a working knowledge of, but it is a weird enough thing that we've never read ahead and we just read it. And that is at on Podbean at Ray of Blight, or you can just look up the NSYNC fun fan fiction radio hour on any of the streaming platforms. Uh, wow, that that sounds amazing. The um, the couple of things I've been thinking about this week, in addition to doing a bunch of research on Twitch, which I'm feeling way too old for, but trying to claw my way through to relevancy. But I've been working on a class with K Dart from Shepherd University called Speculative Sex and doing a bunch of really interesting reading about that. So it'll be like a studio class where we investigate sexuality and gender construct and so on. Uh, but Kay had found this great card game called Consentacle. Have you guys heard about this? So the premise of the card game is that you're a human trying to have a, a mutually satisfying sexual experience with an alien that looks like an octopus. So neither of you can speak to one another, but then as you, and and the cards involved are not, explicit right so so some of the the contact can just be like a hand holding a tentacle or whatever it is but if you read the creators they sort of wrote about how tentacle porn is usually this sort of very aggressive kind of angry sort of thing and this is a way to like defang tentacle porn and turn it into this really nice investigation of communicating with your partner when you're playing the game so it just sounded really interesting i haven't played it yet but i'm looking forward to learning more and then also I've been really getting into listening to heavy metal guitar solos when I'm feeling stressed out. <laughs> and so, so I've been starting to follow these guitar players on YouTube. And, and one that I'm really into right now is uh, Herman Lee. That's L-I. And he's one of the two principal guitar players for Dragon Force. So I'm coming to this a little bit late because I think he got you know popular about, I don't know, 12 years ago or something like that. But if you look up Herman Lee and dragon forest it's just really fun just to watch him go nuts and he has this really long hair and no matter what situation he's in he always has a fan actively blowing on his hair (laughs) so he'll do like youtube streams and stuff in his basement and it's clear that he's actually thought ahead about having his hair uh, blow in the wind while he's shredding on the guitar so that's that's my other recommendation this week and that is excellent Whoa, that's good. Yeah, Consentical and herman lee you know i've been really getting into is and this is something that started during the pandemic was Martha Quinn's group hug. Yeah. So Martha Quinn, original MTV VJ from when they first went on the air, she still works in the eighties business. She has like a radio show and she also goes on Facebook and does these group hugs every Sunday at like one central time. I think people just weigh in, in the comment section. They're like, I remember seeing Van Halen at blah, 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 or this eighties memory or whatever. Like, even though some of the music is, I can take it or leave it or whatever, she is the voice of my youth, the voice that I associate with, like, being in grade school and just, like, hearing it on the TV. And seeing her and hearing her voice is, like, very calming to me. And there have been a number of times where I just started crying while I was watching it. Just like, I don't, this is the voice of my childhood. I don't know. (laughs) My husband walked in the room and he was like, this is this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> the 80s business is now permanently baked into my head as a phrase. Like, Yeah, that's what she calls it. I was like, yeah, that is exactly what it is. Ouch. I have two kind of slightly weird things. I guess two of them are media outlets or I don't know what they are. Uh, one of them is this Twitter feed called 
Reactor Player. It's R-E-A-K-T-O-R-P-L-A-Y-E-R. I think it's from originally from the Reactor. There's like a software application called Reactor. It's a kind of very fancy, complicated synthesizer thing. But anyway, Reactor Player posts like lots of cool stuff that's not directly tied to Reactor, the instrument. And one of them is this amazing link on Hacker Noon, which is another cool website that I want to shout out. That's um, a little bit more like interesting, creative, weird technology stuff that you wouldn't maybe get in other places that I really like. And that's just hackernoon.com. It's rare that I read an article from top to bottom on the internet these days. I feel like I read like the first three sentences or paragraphs and then somehow I've opened up a new tab. The article is called Using the Microphone to Make Sound Reactive Art in JavaScript. And it's by this person named George Galley, G-A-L-L-Y is his last name. I think he uses his. It just made me rethink about the computer as a creative tool. And so this is just different tricks, like code snippets you can use to make the microphone do fun things to your web browser or computer screen. And I was like, yeah, like that's just a whole thing that like we're not doing that we could do with a computer. And that just made me really happy. And so... It's just code snippets and cool, fun stuff like that. And I was like, I feel like I'm so attached to my computer specifically these days that like my mental framing of the computer is like Zoom communication device or like, I don't know, like where I check my email. And like, I really, it was nice to like shake myself off of that and be like, oh, look at all this cool, weird stuff that you could do just being like, like into your microphone. And then like making cool visuals. And I I just thought that was really cool. So have you used it yet? I took the snippets that (laughs) this is like so internet. It's it's goofy. But like I took the snippets and of course some of them were giving me errors. (laughs) So I need to figure out like it's like, oh, creative tool technology. (laughs) Like, oh, it failed. (laughs) But some of them do work. And it's and some of them, you know, they're quite basic. They're kind of black and white uh, visualizations. They're not really fancy but it's just so rewarding visualizing the voice is just such a fun interesting like that like classic even like oscilloscope view of like your voice waves you know it's just such a captivating thing it made me um kind of nerd out on that so i got some some things working they're all the the basics that he has listed in the in the article so i haven't tried to make my own or make anything that would be particularly fun or explosive or weird cool. but um, it's pretty fun yeah computers are weird they should be weirder. Liz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, this has been delightful. You guys are so much fun. I love your podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. I, oh, I have to also say that if people would like to see who Liz is, we're a podcast. But if you go to the Quimby's Instagram, there are amazing videos that Liz is in talking about the new things that are at Quimby's. So I have that right, Liz? That's how I think about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So every Saturday before we open at 1130 Central Time, we get on our Instagram and do an Instagram live stream that we just call New Stuff Saturdays. And we just talk about the stuff that came in that week and any announcements. And It's so fun. Well, thanks. It's really great. So people should check that out. So you can see what Quimby's looks like. You have a, some colleagues, I guess your coworkers, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So typically... It's Saturday before we open. It's me and Corinne Helbert, my coworker. Yeah, but sometimes she's not able to make it if she had to, you know, had something happening that she couldn't work that day and then someone else would get involved. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's really great. Every time I, you know, Instagram is just a, it's a fire hose of just stuff. But I'm always like, like, I want to see what it is. And it's because it's always just cool to hear what, what you think is interesting and what has shown up at the store and stuff. So thanks for doing it. It's cool. That's it. I guess we're done. We, we recorded a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>